what's really me, what's inside me, my life is going to go on forever. I'll be with Christ. I've begun a relationship with him. And, he's, and I will be with him forever. That's crazy. How do you know that? Well, I guess I know it because, uh, number one, because I know Christ. But number two, because, because he, uh, he proved it himself. He died and he came back to life. And he displayed that for us all. He walked around for 40 days showing himself to be alive. Well, how do you know that happened? Well, because there were people hundreds of years before Jesus that said he was going to do it. And then also his friends and his enemies saw him do it. There were people even that were enemies of uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, one, who was an enemy of the church, an enemy of Christ, who was persuaded against his will. There were his brothers who rejected him at first, and later after his resurrection, we find them bowing the knee and worshiping their brother as the Lord. Well, how can you believe after all these years that things haven't changed, that their words haven't been lost? Well, we have manuscripts that go back to the early days of, of Jesus, hundreds of them. We've got lots of evidence that the words haven't changed. And we have the witness of the church itself. Uh, The first 200 years of the church, there was no reason for anybody to follow Christ. They didn't gain from it financially. They lost their, their lives, their property, their families. They had no reason to go ahead and, and do that. Okay, so what? What's it all, where does it all lead anyway? Well, it's, for me, it's, it's made my life different. It's helped me to get out of myself, to stop thinking only about me and to start thinking about other people. My relationship with the Lord has changed me in that way and made a difference in my life. Well... So, uh, what if you're wrong? And what if you die? Well, if I'm wrong, my life has been better because of my faith in Christ. And if I die, well, then I guess I'm no worse off. I'm better off. I'm infinitely better off because I had a life of meaning and purpose and a reason. But what if I'm right? If I'm right, I have an eternity with with Jesus. And what about you? My title this morning, uh, What Do You Mean? How Do You Know? And So What? I am uh, borrowing unashamedly from Bill Jack's Simple Tools for Brain Surgery. Anybody seen it? Nobody's seen it. I would hardly recommend it. It's a, uh, it's a little DVD. It's a very quirky little DVD. It's great for junior high guys. Um, <laughs> It's, I loved it, too. Uh, but the, I'm actually missing one of his four key questions that he has, and that is, what if you are wrong and you die, which can bring you back to a, person's, to a discussion of a person's uh, personal salvation? I'd like to talk about these questions today because they're great follow-up questions, and they're important questions for getting, out, getting at the truth of a matter. They are good questions in ordinary conversation, but they're especially good questions in a world where there's persecution and limits on free speech. They're fantastic questions if you're dealing with an ideologue. 
by follow-up questions. I call them follow-up questions because uh, you do have to have a context or a background to begin with. Uh, you're probably not going to ask, what do you mean, if, if uh, you don't have any context. And uh, so, you know, a teacher in the school or a politician's speech or a, a mealtime conversation could end up providing that context that you need. In our postmodern society, though, where people believe there isn't any absolute truth, we probably don't ask enough questions. I'm talking about myself primarily here, but maybe about you as well. What about you? Do you ask a lot of questions? I think we're, there's a couple of reasons for that that we don't. One is that we're losing the art of conversation, and another is that because we are so uh, used to being entertained that it's, it's we're, well, we, we've lost the art of conversation. And then the other thing is that we're sometimes scared about where the questions might lead to. We don't want to follow them up that far. Been going through the Truth Project from Focus on the Family with some other people, and we've had a couple of great discussions. Uh, we were continuing it last night about about what is postmodernism, and Steve Golden uh, and uh, Dan Billen has been filling us in on what is postmodernism, and that it's uh, I'd always equated it basically with just having not having any absolute, not believing in any absolute truth, but it goes deeper. We've learned. Uh, uh, Steve has told us that there's a, something called a power play with it, where people who believe in postmodernism, that if you do believe in absolute truth, you basically have an agenda to marginalize other people or to disenfranchise other people. It's more than just simply not believing in absolute truth. In such an acidic atmosphere of mistrust and intolerance where the in, where the people who claim tolerance are sometimes the most intolerant, uh, questions are one of the best ways to get someone to reconsider the truth. Leading questions to set the context could be famous, the famous journalistic five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Good basic questions, open-ended questions for raising a discussion. Like, uh, what do you think about, for example, uh, what do you think about change in politics? Would that open a discussion, you suppose? Uh, after you've got a context, then you can start digging deeper, and that's where these follow-up questions come in. What do you mean? How do you know? So what? What if you're wrong and you die? By the way, if you want, you can make the questions more polite by putting in a, I don't understand at the beginning of them, as in, a, I don't understand, what do you mean by? Or, I don't understand how do you know? You could change so what. Short questions are always considered to be impolite. So you can lengthen it out a little bit uh, linguistically. And that makes it more polite. Like, uh, uh, where does all this lead? Instead of so what. <laughs> but don't short shrift that third question, so what. Because it's the hinge question. This is where you turn the corner and bring the chickens home to roost, you might say. This is where the person is confronted with the logical result of what he believes. It's what Francis Schaeffer called taking the roof off of somebody. The roof is the system of beliefs by which a person has been shielding himself from his own guilt and lostness. It can be a painful moment of realization, of cognitive dissonance, as Bob Hamilton taught us here a few weeks ago in Sunday school, uh, where suddenly you realize that your belief system doesn't match up with reality. A couple of weeks ago, Todd and 
uh, Amy Jarvis, some of you here from the Homeschooling Network know Amy, and I, uh, we all went to Virginia for a training session for young homeschoolers who were going, who want to be independent filmmakers. There was a teenage boy there who had just discovered the fun of rhetoric and engaging in sophism. I think every teenager goes through this at some point. Uh, He loved to argue. It didn't matter which side. He'd pick a side, any side, and try to argue it and persuade you of the most ridiculous things. And he would just, he'd do this over and over and over and over. And after a while, everybody's getting a little frustrated with him. But uh, it was was fun in a way, too. He was engaging in an intellectual game. This hinged question of so what, however, is not an intellectual game. When you bring a person to where his beliefs don't match up with reality, it should be handled lovingly and patiently. The... uh, Yeah, the goal is to help the person realize where he's being inconsistent and to help him realize his need for Christ. At this point, uh, it shouldn't be a gotcha. It should be, you shouldn't be lording it over the other person. You should be helping them to understand what is happening, and you should be kind to them along the way. But nobody can get on you at this point for preaching at them because you've only been what? Asking questions, exactly. Who can ever be upset with you for asking questions? You're probably already thinking of applications. The last two election cycles, we've heard from many candidates about the need for change in politics. It seems to work everywhere, even in Kenya, according to some recent YouTube video that some people sent me. Um, A natural progression might be something like, what do you think about change in politics? What do you mean by change? How do you know that the politician will make the changes you want? How do you know that these changes will be good? What if the politician does make those changes? So what? What if you're wrong? What will it matter if you die? Let's look at this a little deeper. I'll be using a lot of examples from my experience with Islam. First, I'd like to ask is, Anyone here today a Muslim? I don't think I see anybody that I would think that that's probably the case. Um, does anybody here have a personal friend who's a Muslim? Good. Uh-huh. Yeah, a couple of people. Very good. Well, I just want you to know that I'm not intending to offend anyone by what I say this morning, and I'd be glad to talk with you personally about any questions or disagreements you have after the service, if you do. I mentioned that uh, before that Todd and Amy and I had gone to Virginia for that training session for young filmmakers. As we were waiting to catch the train at 5 a.m. in the morning, Sue was with us too, there was a man uh, at the Topeka station lounging deeply in one of the chairs. He was uh, wearing dark sunglasses and he seemed to be sleeping, but you couldn't tell with the sunglasses. Sunglasses always make me a little bit uneasy, do they, for you? I'm not alone in that. Thank you. Okay. You can't see the person's eyes. Later on the train, uh, I heard someone behind me, in the seat behind me, speaking Arabic, because I have a Muslim, uh, an Arabic background. I, I recognized it, and I, I looked over my shoulder, and it was the man with the sunglasses, and beside him was a seat that was empty. Now I was really curious. 
I, I went to get a drink of water. They have these little water dispensers in the middle of the train car, and, and I got a drink, and then I came back and, and uh, stopped and asked if I could sit beside the fellow. I figured he was probably a Muslim, and, and since it was Ramadan, he was probably fasting. I introduced myself and told him that I had heard him speaking Arabic and that I knew a bit of Arabic as well and talked to him about my background in North Africa and as a teacher of English. He took off his sunglasses and explained he was wearing them because he had had LASIK surgery that week and uh, the light bothered his eyes. Turned out he's a former Iraqi who is in the military as a translator and a teacher of Iraqi culture. Not only that, but his family was, a cult, was from a culturally Catholic background, and he's born again, currently attending a Baptist church. I was very glad to hear that our military had such good advisors. <laughs> we got into a great discussion about Iraqi culture and Muslim society and subjugated minorities that Muslims call the Vimy people, which means protected, the protected people in Arabic, Vimy. We're more used to calling them the persecuted church, unfortunately. He said the reports of Muslims turning to Christ were true, but the conversions were really turning the heat up on the traditional Christian community. The Christian community is a soft target that is getting decimated. No one is willing, to, willing or able to defend them, not the Kurds, who are Muslims, or the Sunnis, or the Shiites. Not even the U.S. military, unfortunately, is able to to really defend them. He talked of churches being burned and Christians being killed, including his own family. He spoke wistfully about how the United States didn't even give special priority to Iraqi Christians who sought asylum in the United States. For years, the Christian community in Iraq had learned to live under the radar, keeping their faith private and mixing with Muslims. But now they had become a soft target for everyone who wanted to create mayhem and proved that the United States-backed government didn't really have control of things. He said he was now learning things about Islam that, about, uh, that he never knew when he was living in the midst of a Muslim society. In Iraq, he'd had Muslim neighbors and boyhood pals that he considered friends, and he couldn't understand why they didn't defend the Christian community. He was learning that the problem was Islam and what Islam teaches about interacting with non-Muslims. I just mentioned that I pulled off the web last night. Official, 3,000 Christians flee Iraq's Mosul, Saturday, October 11th. Baghdad, hundreds of terrified Christian families have left Mosul to escape extremist attacks that have increased despite months of U.S. and Iraqi military operations to secure the northern Iraqi city, political and religious officials said Saturday. Some 3,000 Christians have fled the city over the past week alone in a major displacement to Duraid Mohammed Kashmula, the governor of northern Iraq's Nineveh province. Heard of Nineveh before? He said most have left for churches, monasteries, and the homes of relatives in nearby Christian villages and towns. Mosul police have reported finding the bullet-riddled bodies of seven Christians in separate attacks so far this month. The latest, a day laborer found on Wednesday. On Saturday, militants blew up three abandoned Christian homes in eastern Mosul, police said. Father Bolis Jacob of Mosul's Mar Afram Church said he was at a loss to understand the violence. We respect the Islamic religion and the Muslim clerics, he said. We don't know under what religion's pretext these terrorists work. 
In Mosul, where Christians have lived for some 1,800 years, a number of centuries-old churches still stand. Joseph Jacob, a professor at Mosul University, said there were nearly 20,000 Christians in the city before the 2003 U.S. invasion. 20,000, but over half have since left for neighboring towns or new countries, he said. Islamic terrorists have frequently targeted Christians since the invasion, forcing tens of thousands to flee Iraq. Attacks had tapered off amid a drastic decline in overall violence nationwide. But that appears to be changing with the deaths this month. Where is the government and its security forces as these crimes take place every day? Asked Azuz, who is now staying with his wife and three children in a monastery in the Christian-majority town of Karakush, east of Mosul. We think we've got bad with the meltdown of our stock market recently. I'm going to come back to the questions in a moment that we started with, but first let me provide a little context on Islam. I mentioned at the beginning that these questions were especially good in situations where you're dealing with an ideologue or where there is persecution. In my experience, there are many ways to look at Muslims. In social terms, you could talk about secularists, traditionalists, and fundamentalists. We could talk about various schisms and subgroups such as Sufi Muslims, with their various mystical branches, Shia Muslims, and their divisions into fivers, seveners, twelvers, and radical groups like Hezbollah. Or we could talk about majority Sunni Muslims with their four schools of jurisprudence and their various radical vanguards such as Wahhabi, Islamic Brotherhood, Hamas, Abu Sayyaf, etc. However, the following might be a more practical way to group Muslims. I'd rather look at Muslims by eschatology, as it relates to Islamic law. This identifies the ideologues. On one level, the majority of Muslims probably would fall into the category of being cultural identity Muslims. They take their cultural identity seriously, but they're not really concerned about bringing in Islamic law or taking it to the rest of the world. They, probably, they may not even practice Islam very much themselves. might go to mosque once in a while, but it's more of an identity thing for them than it is really a, a faith, really a, a very serious practice. Second group would be serious or born-again Muslims. Born-again is a phrase that Muslims in the United States re- use to refer to maybe somebody who's come from Egypt or, or from uh, uh, Jordan or from Morocco or some other country. And they arrive here as a cultural identity Muslim, but after being questioned by people about their faith and people trying to share the gospel with them or something, they start investigating their faith more closely and more closely, and they become born again. They start taking their faith very seriously. They start doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing. Of these people who have become very serious, there are, you can split them into two groups. Those who have a slow eschatology, and those who have a fast eschatology. Slow eschatology, those people who believe that, yes, we have an obligation to bring in Islamic law. That is a part of Islam. You can't get away from it. If you're a Muslim, you have to believe this, that Islamic law is good for the whole world. We have to take Islam to the entire world. But it can be done incrementally. We can do it little bit by little bit. A slow eschatology bringing it in, especially because 
you know, we don't have the power right now and things are kind of tough and, it's, and we've got to make sure we're, we remain at peace with everybody around us. Then there are, are those serious Muslims who have a fast eschatology. These are the ones that believe Islamic law is now. It's for now. It's for today. I need to push. I need to shove. I need to do everything I can to bring it in as soon as I can. The thing is, it, is that you can move a cultural identity Muslim into a serious Muslim, and you can move a serious Muslim with a slow eschatology into a serious Muslim with a fast eschatology without too much effort. Especially, it seems uh, that we're seeing lots of people change from being serious Muslims with a slow eschatology into serious Muslims with a fast eschatology as the, as the Islamic world experiences more and more success in the military arena and in the, um, and in the legal arena as they begin to bring things in. So the transition, can't, it's, these are not hard and fast categories that a person stays in forever once he's in one. Maybe you've heard the word jihad before. Um, jihad is, really just means struggle. A lot of people equate it with holy war, and that's not really accurate. Jihad is spoken more about in the Quran than the, what are normally called the five pillars that people have to do. The, the praying, the almsgiving, the fasting, the going on the hajj to Mecca, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Jihad is spoken of more than all those other things. Some people equate it as being a sixth pillar. And it, um, it, uh, jihad basically doesn't, it doesn't mean holy war, it means struggle. It is the means, it's the struggle, and the goal, the objective of jihad is to bring in Islamic law. The struggle to bring in Islamic law over my own personal life, over my local area, over the country, and eventually over the world. That's jihad, the struggle to bring in Islamic law. There are many aspects of Islamic law because Islam is a complete way of life, and that's kind of hard for us to understand sometimes as Christians. Uh, Jesus said, uh, he told Pilate that, yes, he was a king, but his kingdom was not of this world because if it was, his followers would be fighting for him. But for Muslims, the kingdom is of this world, I could argue persuasively, I think, with you that it's impossible not to offend serious Muslims eventually. You know, the, the headscarf, very simple little thing. Yeah, if ever, did you know that in some countries it's banned? Can you, can you think of a country where the headscarf is banned, where it's forbidden, absolutely forbidden, for a Muslim woman to wear a headscarf in certain areas? Can you guess where that might be? France? You're right. They are doing it in France. And not too much to be expected there. I mean, Muslims make up a, a, a good, they're a good sizable minority in France. But actually, no, I'm thinking, uh, they're debating it in France, they're working it through in France, or, but uh, I'm actually thinking of another country, Turkey. Can you imagine that? Turkey is a Muslim country, predominantly Muslim, and it's definitely Muslim. I mean, they restrict Free speech, in some ways, they don't—they don't allow a Muslim to be converted. They—they 
They put restrictions. You have to get special building permits if you want to improve or build onto your church. And they don't allow that very quickly. It's very difficult for churches to expand. But, in, but Turkey is not officially a Muslim country. It is a, officially a democratic, secular, constitutional republic. And they know that the scarf is, the headscarf is the proverbial camel's nose under the tent wall. It seems so innocent in itself. But Turkey believes that, if you're, that you're giving implicit approval to Islamic law when you accept the headscarf. Now, it's estimated that about 65% of the women in, in Turkey do wear the headscarf. But they're not allowed to wear it at schools or universities or at government buildings. So if you're a, a Muslim woman in Turkey and you want to go to the university, you either have to compromise your principles and take off your headscarf, or you have to go to another country to get your university training. You cannot get a university education in, in Turkey if you wear a headscarf. Isn't that odd? A Muslim country, and they won't allow the headscarf because it's one of the basic tenets of Islamic law. And they know that if they open the door to headscarves, they're giving approval for Islamic law. And they don't really want it. It could be the fi- another point of tension could be the prayers five times a day. Uh, there's an ongoing conflict right now. Maybe you've read about it up at the, the meat plant in Grand Island, Nebraska, where several hundred Muslim workers have walked off the site because, they're, because the, their bosses have not been willing to compromise with them about breaks during the day for the, for the five prayers. Uh, it could be the it could be Eastern, East uh, Detroit, uh, Michigan, where um, which is now being called Middle East Detroit. There are underst- I understand seven mosques and many homes that are broadcasting the prayer call five times a day. They got approval um, here a couple years ago to do that, and now people are ca- calling it Middle East uh, Detroit. Points of tension. But let me focus on two issues of Islamic law that aren't so innocent, apostasy and vimitude. Currently in the United States, it's illegal for Muslims to practice the penalty of Islamic law against a Muslim that commits apostasy or blasphemy. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I actually know of at least one case here in the United States where the former head of the Islamic College of Chicago became a Christian, and there were many attempts on his life after that, Caucasian fellow. Uh, Muhammad executed Muslims who turned from Islam and blasphemed against him, even allowing followers to pretend they weren't Muslims in order to get close to people to assassinate them. He endorsed that practice. His example is called Sunnah, and it's considered to be God-endorsed. Let me read a passage from a book published in 1997 here in Maryland. It's called Reliance of the Traveler, a Classic Manual of Islamic Sacred Law. It lists situations in which a person can be executed for, according to Islamic law. Number one, leaving Islam is the ugliest form of unbelief and the worst. It may come about through sarcasm as when a person is told, trim your nails, it's Sunnah, because the prophet trimmed his nails. And if the person replies in sarcasm, I wouldn't do it even if it worked Sunnah. That sarcastic reply is worthy of death in Islamic law. Now, if a person just is speaking off the cuff and 
and uh, he just says something wildly without really meaning it, or if he, you know, where his tongue just runs away with him, or if he's quoting someone, or if he's saying out of fear, then it's excused. But if he's doing out of genuine sarcasm and disrespect, he's to be executed. When a person has reached puberty and is sane and voluntarily apostatizes from Islam, he deserves to be killed. There's the case here recently of an Afghani fellow who had gone to Pakistan. He'd trusted Christ, came back to Afghanistan because he's in the midst of a divorce situation. Uh, family was making his wife divorce him because he had become a Christian. And he came back to try to renegotiate things. This is while the United States was in control of Afghanistan. And he was, um, he was jailed. And in the end, we were not able to persuade Afghanistan to change their law and allow people to leave Islam and become a Christian. Instead, they had to find this flimsy excuse that the guy was really insane. And therefore, they allowed him to leave the country. And that's the way they got around it diplomatically. Uh, in Morocco, I have seen uh, Christians put in insane asylums and given all sorts of drugs that messed up their minds because they had left Islam and trusted Christ. Another thing for which you can be executed is if you revile the religion of Islam or if you believe that things of themselves by their own nature have any causal influence independent of the will of Allah, you should be killed. If you deny the existence of angels or jinn, jinn is an in-between sort of creature between angels and demons. Uh, We get the word genie from it, from that Arabic word jinn. Uh, If you deny the existence of angels or jinn or the heavens, you're supposed to be killed. If you're sarcastic about any ruling from the sacred law, you're supposed to be killed. If you deny that Allah intended the prophet's message, Allah bless him and give him peace, reading what the text says, to be the religion followed by the entire world, if you deny that God had intended his message to be the religion followed by the entire world, you are supposed to be killed. There are others, for the subject is nearly limitless. May Allah Most High save us all Muslims from it. Written by Ahmed ibn Naqib al-Misri, Reliance of the Traveler, a classic manual of Islamic sacred law, translated by Noha Mim Keller, 1997. Regarding vimitude, or subjection of non-Muslim minorities, in Surah 929, the Quran, it says, Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold forbidden that which, uh, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and His Messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book. People of the book, there's three people of the book, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Even if they are people of the book, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. I've already spoken about the experience of the Iraqi fellow I met on the train. If a Dhimmi people aligns itself with a non-Muslim government, that's the accusation against the Christians in Iraq, is that they're aligning themselves with the U.S. government. If they stop paying the jizya tax, that's the claim that's being used in northern Egypt, where for years the government never required the jizya tax, and now extremists in northern Egypt are, are killing cops and taking their homes. Or if they, um, if they have harmed a Muslim or his property, 
or if the Vimy commits blasphemy against Muhammad or the Quran, as we have in Pakistan, the blasphemy laws that are being used against Christians, um, then the Vimy in that case loses his protected status and is back under jihad at that point with the forfeiture, possible forfeiture of his life, his property, and or his freedom. He could be sold into slavery instead of, instead of just killed. This is happening today in, as I said, northern Egypt with the cops and also in Pakistan. You can see that the conversion of Muslims in Iraq makes the church a, why it makes the church a soft target for radical Muslims in Iraq. So have you heard of these two aspects of Islamic law before? Vimitude? Have you heard of that? Haven't? How about uh, apostasy, the law of apostasy? Maybe you've heard of that one. Some of you? Okay. If you haven't, and I'm not surprised if you haven't, it's because of another concept related to Islamic law. It's called taqiyya. Taqiyya is the, the obligation, the right, the freedom to lie and deceive non-Muslims. I believe it was in 2003, I saw that Ayla Shelby from the Washburn Criminal Justice Department was going to give a lecture on the possibility of terrorism and agribusiness. He was speaking at the Washburn University Union. I arrived and sat at a long table uh, around which were about 15 people gathered with another 10 to 15 people sitting, sitting around the edge of the room. Dr. Shelby gave his presentation about the possibility of terrorism with agribusiness. You know him, you guys from Washburn? Don't know him? Okay. <laughs> Interesting fellow. Yeah. Uh, there was another fellow in the corner that began to pepper him after his talk with some rhetorical questions, but mainly protesting Dr. Shelby's use of the word Islamist, equating it with terrorists. The fellow in the corner obviously was someone of influence and was surrounded by four or five young men who seemed to be his disciples. He didn't think that the word Islam should be used in conjunction with any kind of terrorism. He quoted the Quranic verse, Surah 2, 256, Surah chapter 2, verse 256, that's most often quoted here in the United States. Uh, it says there should be no compulsion in religion. Anybody ever heard that verse before? Nobody's talked with Muslims. Usually it's the verse that's brought out when you're talking with Muslims in the United States. There should be no compulsion in religion. Several liberal older people around the table began to agree with the fellow from the corner and began to feel so and I began to feel sorry for Dr. Shelby. They were, they were really ganging up on him. Earlier the fellow in the corner had asked Dr. Shelby if he was a Muslim, to which Dr. Shelby had replied that he was a Lebanese Arab who was a Christian. His father was a Christian, but his mother was a Muslim. The fellow in the corner had used that to say that it was obvious that he wasn't a Muslim, despite his Arab name, because he misunderstood Islam. So I addressed the fellow in the corner, and I said, uh, you've already asked Dr. Shelby if he's a Muslim and found that he's a Christian. I take it that you're a Muslim. Is that correct? And the fellow acknowledged that he was. And then I said, you must know that Surah 2, 256 is an early Meccan verse in the early days before Muhammad fled to Medina in what's called the Hijra, Muslims date their calendar from the time that, Muslim, that Muhammad fled Mecca and went to Medina. And later verses in the Quran abrogate that early verse. 
Muhammad changed his view about that. That early verse that says there should be no compulsion in religion has been abrogated. I have verified that with Muslim scholars uh, at the Islamic Center here in, in Topeka. Um, a scholar that came in from Washington, D.C., a legal scholar. Um, I also asked the fellow from the corner, since Muslims who have been involved in terrorism to date are seeking to force the rule of Islam upon the world, I think it's fair to ask, what is your view of Islamic law? Knowing that Islamic law prescribes killing of Muslims who reject Islam to become Christians, Jews, and Baha'i, I put in all three there to be diplomatically correct there, um, and, uh, and that the Islamic law prescribes subjecting non-Muslim minorities under Dhimmi restrictions. The fellow in the corner began to equivocate and say these things weren't a part of Islamic law. At this point, Dr. Shelby found his voice again and said they most definitely were. As a Christian Arab, he had made a personal study of such things. The room got very quiet, and the lecture ended soon thereafter. On the way out, I heard one of the liberal older ladies who had been attacking Dr. Shelby before say, that was certainly enlightening. I had no idea. Out in the hall, I waited and spoke with the fellow from the corner who came out with his disciples. We chatted a bit. He wanted to know my background, but I avoided getting into specifics of what country I'd been in and what I'd been doing, except that I'd seen Muslim persecution of Christians personally. In the hall, I had a chance to ask questions about where their faith was taking them and to challenge them in regard to how did they know what they believed was true and to explain my faith in Christ. I attempted to get them to empathize with me and see why I, as a Christian, should have trouble accepting Islam. They had the concept of witnesses in a court of law. Law is very important to them. When I had the witnesses of the prophets predicting the death and resurrection of Jesus and the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' friends and enemies of what he said and did all on one side, and then I had the witness of one man named Muhammad who came 600 years after Jesus saying it didn't happen that way, can't they see why it would be difficult for me to accept Islam? We exchanged contact information and we corresponded a few times by email, but the, the relationship unfortunately didn't really go anywhere. I don't know what happened to the disciples who overheard the entire conversation and everything that happened. The fellow's name was Dr. Musa El Bayoumi. He was from Cairo, Egypt. And at that time, he was the director of the Heart and Vascular Institute of St. Francis Hospital. And he became the director of the Islamic Center in, in Lawrence. Because of the other, ex of other experiences I've had with serious Muslims, I'm convinced that Dr. El Bayoumi knew better when he denied the application of Islamic law in regard to apostasy and Dhimmi people. It's not the first time I've run into that, where someone will say one thing in front of one audience and something else in front of a Muslim audience. I feel bad for him. In preparing for this message, I found on the web that his 16-year-old daughter was killed in an, auto, in an auto accident that same year. She was going to St. Louis with her mother and younger sister to visit colleges when their van blew a tire across the median and struck another vehicle. I 
I feel bad for him because we had an opportunity to talk about what was true. I see him as a victim in many ways. I see all Muslims as people who are caught up in an ideology that is, that is holding them captive. We have the light. We have the truth. We need to share it with others. And I think we need to start by asking questions. What do you mean? How do you know? So what? What if you're wrong and you die? Let's pray. Lord, you've asked us to be um, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And um, I certainly don't, for one, don't feel capable of being wise as a serpent. Lord, um, thank you that um, it's not totally our responsibility, that instead it's a privilege to be serving with you and to be asking questions and helping people uh, come to know you. But it's not my responsibility. You're the one that has to give the spirit, and you're the one that makes that transition for people. Lord, uh, do pray for uh, Muslim peoples around the world who have never, uh, they haven't had a chance to, they haven't, uh, they haven't been exposed to the, to the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. They're not aware that he walked around on the earth for 40 days after his death, that he proved that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh. Lord, um, pray that you would help us to learn to be good conversationalists and to be able to not just remain on the surface in our conversations with people, but to get below the surface, to find ways to do that and to take opportunity to, to share the truth with other people, to share the light that we have. Thank you now for this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.